All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here today. I'll just address the elephant in the room. Um, I tore my Achilles on November 20th, which was a Monday. Uh, actually, in this very room, in that very spot, uh, while playing basketball. Um, and so this wasn't a cruel joke. It's not like I tore it, and then the pastors were like, okay, yeah, let's get him pre uh, preach on Christmas. Uh, it was already scheduled, and then I tore it. And then, um, by God's grace, there's no pain, and I just have to wait for it to heal. Um, so thank you guys for your prayers. Uh, it's I've really experienced um, the love of the church family. Uh, it's when you get injured, like everyone rushes in, gives you food, boba, all that good stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's truly been, it's strange to say, it's made life inconvenient, but it has been a blessing. I'd love to share more if you actually want to know more afterwards what that um, might look like. Um, I want to give a reminder as well. I think uh, it is pretty full today, so if you guys have space, feel free to squeeze towards the middle just to make room um, in this Hope Center just for guests to come in. So if there is space in between you guys, feel free to move towards the center, and that would just be uh, really amazing for guests to come in and might need some space. Um, so with that, let me uh, open this up in a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll dive into today's uh, Christmas sermon. Lord, as we come before your throne, we want to celebrate that Christmas, it's all about Christ. It's all about your son, Jesus. But we know that's often... Uh, lost upon us because things get so busy with all the preparations and things that come to mind. Um, but Lord, just give us a moment right now that this is sacred space as we hear from your word uh, that 2,000 years ago you sent your son Jesus and he is alive today and that speaks to our life. So Lord, I pray that we would be open to what you might be speaking to us through um, uh, your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of my sermon today is Good News of Great Joy. And for many of us, Christmas is the best time of the year. It is a time of good news and uh, great joy. Especially if you're a student, you're on Christmas break, so finals are over. Um, some colleges have six weeks off, which is really crazy. I don't know how they do that, but great for you guys. But some schools are maybe two or three weeks off. Um, there's gifts, there's chocolate, uh, Christmas lights. So Christmas is a really, really wonderful time. But that Christmas joy can also be easily spoiled or broken. For some of us, it really isn't the best time of the year. For some of us, we're dealing with loss, uh, with loneliness, perhaps even death. But as Christians, we certainly still experience those things, sadness, sorrow, and grief, but we remain steadfast because we possess good news of great joy. And that doesn't come through a possession, but it comes through a person, Jesus Christ. And I want to unpack that today. Um, we're going to be in the book of Luke today. So in the Bible, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we're going to be in the, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't know who Luke is, he was actually a physician, um, which makes me kind of wonder how they treated Achilles' uh, ruptures back then without surgery and everything. But actually, this was without surgery, but that's kind of going off topic. But he was a physician, so he was really detailed. Um, and he compiled this gospel by interviewing the original eyewitnesses um, and putting everything together in an orderly account to encourage his friend uh, Theophilus. It also serves us today because we have a historically accurate account of the life of Jesus. So we're going to actually start in Luke 2, but it's important to know that in Luke 1, there's been some divine appearances by angels. So an angel appears to Zechariah to announce that his wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to John the Baptist. And then another angel appears to Mary, declaring that she will give birth to a son named Jesus, who will be the Savior of the world. 
So now we go into Luke chapter 2. We're going to see another uh, angel appearance later on. Um, so I just want to prepare us for that to understand what's happening in uh, the book of Luke. Um, so yes, have your Bibles. Please join me in Luke uh, chapter 2. And um, I'll open my Bible to get there right now. Luke chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 1. Now, I realize I don't have a PowerPoint clicker, so I'll just say next slide, and then AV team, thank you so much for uh, helping me with that. We'll go on to the next slide right now, and that is the Savior's arrival. And we're going to look at um, verses 1 to 3, and we'll have the next slide. And this is Luke's setting, uh, the setting for um, the birth of Jesus. So this is what it says in verses 1 to 3. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So what's happening here? The Jews are under Roman rule. Actually, for the past hundred of years, uh, past 700 years, the Jews have been ruled by foreign nations. The Babylon, uh, Babylon Assyria, Persians, the Greeks, and now uh, it's the Romans who rule over uh, the Jews. And so they send out a, that all the world should be registered, meaning all that live in the Roman world, which would include the Jews. And a registration is uh, basically a census. And in America, there's still a U.S. census to gather the population, gather data about that. Um, so for the Roman decree, this census, the purpose was to uh, analyze and collect more taxes. I mean, I think we kind of <laughs> relate with that nowadays. Um, and so this impacts the Jews that are living under Roman rule. And we're going to see that it's going to summon Mary and Joseph to go back to Bethlehem because according to Jewish custom, they can return to their ancestral home, Bethlehem, in order to uh, be registered. Now, why does Luke do this? Why does he make the effort to uh, paint the backdrop? Well, Luke does this a lot. In chapter 3, he does the same thing, but he presents the backdrop of a pagan Roman empire because he wants a contrast. Even though a foreign empire is in charge, God is still actually using the decrees and laws of a Roman empire according to his glorious purpose. He uses foreign decrees for his divine purpose. And this will bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that a savior must come from Bethlehem. And God's purpose will stand. So we're going to see that Mary and Joseph are brought uh, to Bethlehem. Let's read verses 4 and 5, which is in the next slide. It says this, And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We'll stop there. So the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's around 85 to 90 miles, so it's not a short distance. Um, and whenever an author in the Bible mentions a location or a name, it's probably pretty important to take note of that. Why did Luke mention things like uh, Bethlehem or David? Well, that's actually a very important thing because in the Old Testament, there are prophecies that predicted that a Savior would come from the line of David and a Savior would come from um, from the town of Bethlehem. In the next slide, I actually wanted to show us that from Jeremiah 23 that God promises that a Savior will come from the line of David. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. 
and this is the name by which you'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah was written about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and it predicts that the Savior will come to the line of David, and this is actually coming into fruition. On the next slide I have, there's another prophecy that's being fulfilled that a Savior will come from the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the book of Micah was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now to put it into perspective how amazing and crazy this is, uh, so we know Jesus returned 2,000 years ago. As Christians, we also believe he's coming back in the future in a day or an hour that we do not know. But imagine if an angel appeared right now and said to us um, that Jesus will return in, in the year 2700, uh, in this exact date, um, in this hour. Um, or even uh, crazier, what if an angel said, today Jesus will return? Wouldn't that be crazy? Wouldn't that be uh, amazing that to see prophecy come to life? Um, in fact, in the Bible, there's actually more than 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before that Jesus' birth and his life actually fulfilled. So what am I trying to get at? That God, despite what happens in this life, there are no accidents. The laws and decrees and events that happen in our lives, God is using and governing everything to fulfill his glorious purpose of salvation. So God's divine timing brings Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem as Mary is betrothed, which means that she's legally committed to marrying Joseph, but the marriage is not yet uh, consummated. Um, she is with child, which means she's pregnant um, with Jesus as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. This is the miracle virgin birth. So now she's ready. Let's look, look now at verses 6 to 7, which is the next slide, and we see the birth of Jesus captured in just two sentences. Here's what it says. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So that's it. Luke just uses two sentences and describes the birth of our Savior Jesus just like that. There's no uh, red carpet treatment. There's not all these articles written about how it happened. Just two sentences to describe the arrival, the modest and humble arrival of our Savior Jesus. It says there's no room in the end, which back then was like a public shelter, or it could have been the private room of a house. There's no room there. So they go to a manger. And a manger is perhaps uh, either in a stable or in a cave. Both were used to house a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. So our Lord Jesus was born in an animal room, a place that was not fit for a king. God the Son comes to earth in the form of a baby. I know we know this as Christians growing up. We know this story, the nativity scene. But we actually think about it. The God of the universe, the God who created everything, his master plan to save humanity does not come in the form of a mighty warrior, but in a baby. It's crazy. Being a parent this past year, it's been so amazing to see our daughter Mia uh, Especially when she's sleeping, she looks so peaceful. Sometimes, like, I have my scooter, so I'm just, like, looking over, trying to make sure she doesn't uh, wake up, but just trying to stay all so calm and silent. And this past week, I was just reflecting, our Lord Jesus 
was at one point a baby, helpless, innocent, weak. That's how God chooses to save the world, in weakness and humility. It's really amazing if we really stop and pause and think about it because the way power and authority is demonstrated nowadays, it's with the red carpet treatment, with lights, cameras, 24-7 social media coverage. That's not the way that Jesus arrives on this earth. So even though nobody knows, about a very little people know about the birth of Jesus, heaven still announces it through uh, the announcement of the angels. And that leads us to the next point in the next slide, that the angels' announcement, this will take us through uh, verses 8 to 20, which is the remainder of our passage. So as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, two miles away in the same region, heaven announces the birth of a Savior. Let's look at verses 8 to 9 in the next slide. It says this, And in the same region, there are shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So I know in our culture, we see angels as really cute, babies, wings, clouds, harps, and so adorable. But in the Bible, whenever we saw, whenever people see an angel, the first reaction is not, oh my gosh, it's such a cute uh, angel. They're terrified. They're frightened. In Revelation, it talks about angels with wings and eyes and all these different types of heads. I don't know what it looked like in this instance, but we know that angels were terrifying, powerful creatures. And so it makes sense that these shepherds were terrified. And so it was just another normal night shift for these shepherds in the same region of Bethlehem, so about two miles out. And shepherds, maybe in your mind, you might think, okay, a shepherd, really clean, a staff, taking care of sheep. But actually back then, shepherds were seen as low-class citizens. In some ways, they're kind of looked down upon because they worked outdoors in the fields. And because of that, they couldn't really participate in religious rituals or temple practices. Uh, so it's like the blue-collar workers in today's society, or the construction worker who works night shifts on the freeways, which I'm really thankful for. But back then, shepherds, they were not really respected. They were on the bottom floor of society. You would think if God were to announce the birth of a Savior, he would go to the high and mighty, or even to the religious leaders in the temple. But he goes to shepherds, no-name shepherds, lowly shepherds. And so when the angels appear, it's accompanied by the bright presence of the glory of God. It's these heavenly high beams which shine them and blind them. Think of when the presence of God um, overwhelmed Moses, blinded Moses, or the presence of God that blinded Paul uh, when he was converted. So they're afraid. They're in terror. They thought they're actually going to die. But the angel proceeds to comfort them with good news. And this is the main crux of today's sermon. Verses 10 and 12 says this in the next slide. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger. So when angels appear to humans, at least in the Bible, they tend to have almost like a structure. They would have a command to fear not. They would give a commandment, why? You shouldn't fear. And they would give a sign. So here this angel says, fear not. The reason is that a Savior is born for you. The sign is that you'll find a baby 
in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. This will be good news of great joy for you, for all people. And so it would first come to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. So that's all of us. The whole world will now experience the Savior. But I want us to pay attention in verse 11. We see that Jesus is described in three terms, that he is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These three terms are pretty important for us to know if we want to understand why Jesus is our treasure. To know Jesus as a Savior, well, in the Old Testament, a Savior was someone who would rescue or deliver from danger. So think of in the book of Judges when God would send a judge like Samson to deliver his people. That, in a sense, would be a human Savior. But Jesus is a divine Savior, that he will rescue his people, not just from physical danger, but from spiritual danger, which is sin. The word Christ can mean uh, anointed one or uh, Messiah. And it describes that this Jesus, he is chosen by God. Yes, he is a great teacher. Many of us agree with that. But more than that, he is chosen by God to deliver humanity from their sins. And lastly, thirdly, Jesus is Lord meaning that he has the absolute sovereignty and divine authority that God himself has. God himself, Jesus is God. And this is something that all of history we wrestle with, that if Jesus is truly God, that he's not just someone who lived 2,000 years ago, he actually makes a claim on my life, that if Jesus truly rose from the dead, my life truly needs to change. And so this is what it means that Jesus is Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so the angels now know that the sign to find this, to identify this, is that there will be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And this was not normal practice, and I'm sure you guys know. This is very unusual. Uh, Babies are not normally lying in a manger, just as we don't normally see babies in Amazon uh, boxes or dumpsters. That's a very unusual sight. So it would be very easy for shepherds to identify, okay, that's a baby in a manger. That's probably who Jesus is. And so they have that in their minds. But before they can even go, before they can even react, something happens. More angels come. Look at verses 13 and 14 in the next slide. It says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So after this single angel completes the announcement, All of a sudden, a multitude, meaning a large number of the heavenly host, meaning angels, fill the sky. Can you imagine that if you were a shepherd back then? It's night, pitch black. There's one angel. It's already really bright. But then later on, a multitude of angels just fills the skies. The whole sky is lit with angels singing glory to God in the highest, meaning all praise is to God in the highest heavens. Why? Because on earth, There is now peace between a holy God and sinful man. That is why we give glory to God in the highest. The angels, they grasp this significance. Made to put it in another way, there is a a man named J.C. Ryle. He was a bishop in the 1800s. He makes this very interesting observation. He says, angels are praising God, yet they don't need a savior. These angels, at least, they haven't sinned. So they don't need a Savior. So why might, they, why might they be praising in this moment? No, they have not sinned. These angels have been obedient to God since creation. 
but they likely saw everything that unfolded. They probably saw humans who were once walking in paradise in the Garden of Eden, but they probably saw the destructive effects of sin, why they were banished and now live in a broken world. They probably witnessed all of that, and now they see the rescue, a savior. They probably know what humans, sinners, have missed out on, living and walking in complete love and harmony and peace with God the Savior. And so they can't help but raise their voices and sing that a Savior is born. Glory to God in the highest. No wonder they sing. They may not need a Savior, but they rejoice that now humans have a Savior. And that's just so amazing to think about. And so the angels depart after this, and if you're a shepherd, what would you naturally do? You wouldn't be thinking, well, how about those sheep? Let's go back to tending sheep. No, they'd be like, a Savior is born today. Let's go to Bethlehem and see if this is actually true. So we see that happening in verses 15 to 16. In the next slide, this is what happens. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Notice that the shepherds, they say, the Lord has made it known to us. Yes, the angels were the messenger, but they know that this is a sign and a message from God himself. So they leave their sheep. Hopefully the sheep are okay because they know there are higher priorities at hand, and they rush to Bethlehem. And again, as I said earlier, it's not too hard to find a baby in a manger. That's a very unusual sight. And they go, and they find Jesus, exactly as his angels describe, in a manger in swallowing claws. So look at verses 17 to 19, or 17 to 20, as we see this completed in the next slide. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her hearts. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pause there. So we see three responses. One is in verse 18, all who heard it wondered. Uh, we don't, the Bible doesn't exactly say who those people are all, but we can assume, okay, there was probably more people in that vicinity, more than uh, Joseph, Mary, and the baby. They wondered, but then the second response, we see Mary. She treasures up all these things. And the third response is from the shepherds. They return and glorify and praise God. Now, going back to the first response, all those who wondered, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that this indicated faith just yet. Because later on, when Jesus grew up and did miracles, the crowds, they were amazed at his miracles. But not all of them were committed to following him. They just wanted to see a magic show or a miracle show. They weren't really interested in giving their life to Jesus. But the second response from Mary, in contrast, you see the word but in verse 19, all who wondered, verse 19, but Mary, she treasured all these things. She pondered them in her heart, meaning she went beyond just wonder and amazement, but she chose to pause, to reflect, and to contemplate the beauty that a Savior is born. Imagine what's going through Mary's mind and heart right now. She knew about an angel who appeared to her cousin, Elizabeth and Zachariah. She knew about the angel who appeared to herself. She knew about the uh, angel who appeared to her husband, Joseph. And now here's a fourth angel appearance who's appearing to the shepherds. Mary is treasuring all this in. And actually in Luke 1, in Mary's song, she says that future generations will call her blessed. She understands the significance 
of this moment, and she's just letting it all sink in. Mary chooses to treasure the birth of the Savior. And thirdly, we see shepherds that they return and they glorify and praise God. You notice how it's kind of a domino effect. First, it was the angels who praised and glorified God. The, uh, the shepherds were terrified. They didn't even know what to think. But then now when they see Jesus, the shepherd, the domino effect happens. They believe that this is the Savior. So they return to their fields. Hopefully their sheep are safe. And they're glorifying and praising God that they were the witnesses to a Savior. They understand the good news and the great joy of Christmas that unto us a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. So I just, if I were to summarize the joy of Christmas, I'd put this as the big idea in the next slide, that the greatest joy of Christmas is celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior for the lost, the sinful, and the ungodly. I think there's just one main takeaway question I want us to think about today. In the next slide, it says this, is Jesus your Savior today? If you're a guest here today, or maybe you're just curious what it means to let Jesus be your Savior, or maybe you've been in church for a long time, but you haven't yet made that intentional decision. Well, first, I want to thank you so much for being here. I know this is a very large church, and it's not easy to walk in and not really know how anything works. You don't really have um, a friend group yet. It's not easy to be at a large church, so we're really happy that you're here. But even more than that, we are really happy, and we would hope for you to consider what it means for Jesus to be your Savior. Today we celebrate the birth of a Savior, but it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there, because when we celebrate his birth, we need to know what Jesus was born to do. The birth of Jesus indicates that he was born to be a savior that saves sinners. That's the very reason we celebrate Christmas. If you've never heard the gospel story before, we believe that God did create this entire world, you and me, to be good, complete. But we also confess that humanity, you and me, we've sinned. We've broken God's law. We've rebelled against his rule. We live a life apart from him. In other words, we choose to live life on our own terms, our way, our preferences, our desires. We don't want God to have authority over our life. But we recognize that we have sinned, and we know that the consequences or wages of sin is death. And that would have been fair, to be eternally separated from God. But the birth of Jesus, it's good news and it's great joy, because 2,000 years ago, God sent a Savior Jesus, born of a virgin in the likeness of sinful flesh, but yet he never sinned. Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, one that we could never do, but he died a sinner's death on the cross in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead, he defeated sin, and he is now seated at the right hand of God and desires for you to, re to repent and turn to him. We deserve justice and wrath as sinners, but we receive grace and forgiveness. Why? Because we have a Savior that saves sinners like you and me. So if you are um, moved by this, perhaps the million-dollar question for you might be, well, how can I be saved? I want this. I want Jesus to be my Savior. The million-dollar question, how can I be saved? In a word, repent. The word repent means to change your mind. Change your mind by turning away from sin. Change your mind by turning 
towards Jesus. First, we change our mind about sin. If I were to ask everyone in this room, how many of you are perfect? No one would uh, raise our hands. We know that we're not perfect. But it's another thing entirely to admit, I'm not only not perfect, but at the core, I'm a sinner. And I was born a sinner, and I live for my own selfish desires, and I reject God's law, and I actually deserve punishment. I don't deserve heaven. I actually deserve hell. That is what it means to change our minds about our sin, our status, and where we stand before God. That's what it means. It's a very radical change of a mind. It's not just, to be a Christian, it's not just a very uh, side change, as if we're painting um, the color of our car, which is a very minor change. It's entire heart change. We change the way we think about sin and our own hearts. But secondly, we change our mind about how we see Jesus. If I say the word Jesus, there's an image that comes to your mind. Maybe you, you think of the image of Jesus on TV or in movies. Uh, maybe you think of a cute baby who was born 2,000 years ago. I'm sure he was adorable. Maybe you think that, I believe Jesus existed 2,000 years ago, but I don't think he has any relevance for me today. To repent and change your mind about Jesus is to believe that I believe in an all-powerful God that can do anything. And I believe that he sent his son Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for my sins. And he came back from the dead, defeating sin and achieved salvation for me. I believe that. I changed my mind and I repent and I turned towards Jesus. That's what it means to repent, to change your mind, to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. I love Romans 10, 9. It says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's it. I don't have to follow any rules. I don't have to be good enough for God. That's it. Faith is a matter of the heart. Of course, we believe a changed heart results in a changed life, but we also know and believe that faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, saves us. So it's not a magical prayer. It's not a repeated prayer that you have to print out and to read, and that's a magical formula. But it is a moment that you decide between you and God, that you repent and you turn away from sin, and you turn towards Jesus. I know it's Christmas here today. For many of us, it's joyful. But for some of us, maybe there are burdens in our hearts. Maybe for some of us, we're carrying the burden of sin. We like the idea of a loving God but could God actually look at my sin, my regrets, my guilt, the horrible things I've done, and can he actually save me? Would he actually want to, even if I sin for the thousandth time in the same way, in the same pattern? Could there exist a God who loves me like that? Can I remind and encourage you that this is the same God who sent angels to lowly shepherds, not to the rich and powerful? This is a gospel for everybody. A Savior saves. A Savior saves sinners. That's the very reason that Jesus came, to save sinners. Some of us are struggling with the burden of loss. We know that some of us have lost loved ones as of late, and so this Christmas season, the holiday season, it can feel empty. It can feel hollow because when we are reminded and gathering around the dinner table, we're reminded of those who are no longer there. Can we actually overcome and have hope in this grief? 
can I encourage you that as Christians, we look to a Savior who conquered death. And there will be a future day when God's children, we will be in heaven, and he'll wipe away every tear, and death will be no more. That there is hope, there is good news and great joy because of our Savior. Give your burdens to him. Jesus is the Savior who desires to carry your burdens of sin, to forgive you, and to invite you to follow him in a life of discipleship. Lastly, before I close, for many of us here, we've been Christians for a while. And maybe for a day like this, we kind of know this story. We know the virgin birth. We know the baby Jesus. We know that angels appear uh, to the shepherds. We know this. But I want to encourage the Christians in this room, let Christ be the joy of Christmas. It's literally in the word, Christmas. Christmas, just word to pronounce, but let Christ be the joy of Christmas. As Christians, it's so easy, and it happens for me too, to do things for Jesus and to forget about him. It's easy to sing worship songs and in the middle remind myself, oh wait, okay, this is for God. I'm singing to Jesus versus just reciting words on his screen. It's easy to serve in ministries, to be busy, and forget that all this is for Jesus. It's easy to read the Bible every day and forget that I am walking with Jesus, a living person seated at the right hand of God. Even preparing my sermon this past week, I had to constantly remind myself, Kevin, you're talking about Jesus. Jesus, I get to talk about you with so many people this Sunday. Jesus, can you help me make the focus all about you? Even in sermon prep, it can easily um, slide into an intellectual exercise, but may that never be. May our faith be a real, vibrant, dynamic, living relationship with the living Jesus. And perhaps for the Christian in this room, we can um, see what Mary did, that she treasured and pondered the birth of Jesus. So how can Christmas be good news of great joy? Christmas will only be a time of good news and great joy if Christ is your Savior today. Even in the face of sin, sadness, loneliness, emptiness, even death, if Christ is your Savior, then like those shepherds on that Bethlehem cold night, you have every reason to rejoice. So may Jesus be our Savior today. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for sending your son Jesus 2,000 years ago. You didn't have to. You're a God who is perfect in justice, and the just thing would be to leave us as we are, dead in our sin. But God, you send your baby Jesus 2,000 years ago, who's born to be a Savior. Lord, you know that in this room, there may be some who have not yet made that decision to repent and let you be their Savior. Perhaps they're holding on to their own burden of sin and regrets, unsure if you can really save. God, I pray that they might experience your peace and your presence in this very moment. And if there's any in this room that desire to repent, just pray this prayer in your heart with me. Lord, I repent and I change my mind about who I am. I know I am your beloved creation, but I am also broken by sin. I desire wicked things, I do wicked things, and I don't even understand the wickedness of my own heart. And Lord, I repent and change my mind about who you are, 
that you're not just a historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago, but you're alive right now. And Lord, I confess that you are my Savior and that you died on the cross for my sins. And Lord, can you please forgive me of my sins and help me live for you? And if you pray that prayer in this very moment, heaven rejoices. The angels shout. God, I pray that if anyone prayed that in this room, that they would know that their names are written in the book of life and that they would have security of their salvation and they would join a local church and walk with other believers. God, I pray for those in this room who have been believers for quite some time. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you. This life is treacherous with temptations and pitfalls, trials and setbacks, but Lord, you're not just our Savior at conversion, but you're our Savior every single day. Help us to rely and depend on you every moment of the day. God, with the angels, we want to sing to you this one last song and give you all glory and praise because you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.